Welcome to the Arlington Street Church podcast. Founded in 1729, Arlington Street continues today as a gathering place for progressive people of faith in the greater Boston area and beyond. We are located at the corner of Arlington and Boylston Streets, across from the Public Garden in Boston, Massachusetts. Please visit ASCBoston.org for more information about this historic Unitarian Universalist congregation. Arlington Street Church, gathered in love and service for justice and peace. African-American women are three times more likely than white women to be in prison. When Andrea James spoke to us here two weeks ago about her work as founding director of Families for Justice as Healing, an initiative to end the incarceration of women, she gave us two directives. The first directive was straightforward. Call your legislators. Last summer, a mere 200 calls ensured the passage of anti-shackling legislation that had been mired in red tape for more than 10 years. The second directive was more complex. Companion one another. Walk together. Be allies. This year, in celebration of what would have been Dr. King's 86th birthday, rereading descriptions and testimonies from the nonviolent actions that were the heart of the black civil rights movement, I was, once again, captivated by the lunch counter sit-ins. I'll tell you more in a few minutes, but first, yeah. as a person with white skin so, um, determined to face racism and longing to work with kindred spirits to fulfill our country's promises of liberty and justice for all people. I want to share with you part of a reflection by my colleague, Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodek, titled Liberty for All Inhabitants of the Land. To talk about race is to talk about a legacy that I don't want, Rabbi Spodek writes. My family came to this country to escape Russians who tried to kill them. My wife's family came to escape Germans who tried to kill them. We didn't come here because we were trying to wield our white skin privilege. I didn't appreciate what it meant to me to be white until I walked into a hotel in Cancun. In a rural village in Mexico, he had led an American Jewish World Service delegation that worked alongside local human rights activists. And afterwards, they all traveled to Cancun. Rabbi Spodek continues, still wearing dirty work clothes, our group walked in through the front door and were immediately stopped by the Mexican hotel security guard. They can't come in this way, he said to me in English, pointing at our Mexican hosts. They are my friends and guests, I said. It doesn't matter, the guard replied. I'd like to speak to your manager, I said. I explained to the manager that my friends and I wished to go to the veranda and enjoy some drinks. He relented, and when we all went in through the front door and enjoyed a breathtaking view and pina coladas. 
Ultimately, says Rabbi Spodek, it makes no difference that I was wearing work clothes or that I wasn't even a guest at the hotel. I was a white American man. I expected to be treated with respect, and I was. Unlike my Mexican hosts, it never occurred to me to enter the hotel through anything other than the front door. It never occurred to me to defer to the security guard when there was someone higher up. It never occurred to me that I wouldn't get my way. My white skin was and is, he says, my uniform. Even as a member of a religious minority, my white skin is a backpack of superpowers. So it's on me to grapple with this country's legacy of racism. On me because whether I want to or not, I benefit from it. Rabbi Brent Chaim Spodak concludes, we Americans have to wrestle with our painful legacy of slavery before we can fulfill the promises conveyed in scripture and engraved on our liberty bell. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. True liberty is the birthright of all the inhabitants of this nation, not the white inhabitants, not the English-speaking inhabitants, all the inhabitants, every one. And now I want to tell you about the lunch counter sit-ins. On February 2nd, 1960, in Greensboro, four black freshmen from North Carolina Agriculture and Technical College went to a Woolworths five and dime. Joseph McNeil bought a tube of toothpaste. Franklin McCain bought some school supplies. And then, along with David Richmond and Ezel Blair Jr., they sat down at the lunch counter and ordered coffee from a white waitress. I'm sorry, she said, but we don't serve colored here. I beg your pardon, said Franklin McCain. You just served me at a counter a few feet away. Why is it that you serve me at one counter and deny me at another? They sat at the counter for over half an hour and were never served. When the store closed, they left. But their courage, widely reported in newspapers and on television, ignited a student movement across the South. Soon, signs appeared in store windows. No trespassing. We reserve the right to service the public as we see fit. Closed in the interest of public safety. Diane Nash, leader of Tennessee's Nashville student movement, recalls, we made plans to join their effort and were surprised and delighted to hear reports of other cities joining in sit-ins. We started feeling the power of this idea whose time had come. Eleven days later in Nashville, 500 students, black and white together, crowded white lunch counters across the cities. In Tallahassee, Florida, white students joined black students from Florida Agriculture and Mechanical University, sharing food at lunch counters to show their disregard for segregated cafeterias. 
In a span of two weeks, there were sit-ins in 11 cities. In April, more than 200 students attended an organizing conference at Shaw University in Raleigh, North Carolina. And toward the end of the weekend, following an exuberant appearance by Dr. King, the students stood in a circle at a local church, joined hands, and sang an exalted, We Shall Overcome. A young, white Southern woman recalled, We all believed. We thought all was going to be okay. But in High Point, North Carolina, the Cress's store removed its lunch counter stools entirely. In Raleigh, North Carolina, when students lined up to go into a Woolworths, they were arrested for trespassing. And the segregationist behavior grew more violent. There are photographs showing white people standing behind the seated protesters, pouring coffee on them, putting out cigarettes on their backs. In Nashville, Diane Nash says the waitresses were nervous. They must have dropped $2,000 worth of dishes. We were sitting there trying not to laugh, and at the same time, we were scared to death. People would say how brave I was for sitting in, but I was wall to wall terrified. At one lunch counter, a group of white teenagers attacked the protesters and pulled them off the stools. The Nashville police arrived and arrested not the teenagers, but 81 protesters who were taken into custody for disorderly conduct. Diane Nash remembers, they said, everybody's under arrest. So we all got up and marched to the wagon, and then they turned around and looked at the lunch counter again, and the second wave of students had all taken seats. And then a third wave. No matter what they did and how many they arrested, there was still a lunch counter full of black and white students eating together. On March 2nd, just one month after the movement had begun, 63 protesters were arrested for sitting in at Nashville's Greyhound and Trailwise bus terminals. But two weeks later, four black people were finally served at Greyhound. <laughs> they were badly beaten as they tried to eat, and the next day, two unexploded bombs were discovered at the terminal. Nonetheless, it was declared a victory, the first in the nation. The sit-ins continued and the violence continued. On the morning of April 19th, the home of Z. Alexander Luby, Nashville's first black councilman and the attorney who had represented the protesters in court, his house was destroyed. The blast from dynamite hurled from a passing car was so powerful that it shattered 147 windows in a building across the street. No one was injured, but blacks and whites were enraged. Later that same day, 2,500 students and community members marched in silence to City Hall. Nashville Mayor Ben West was waiting on the steps. Diane Nash asked him, Mayor West, do you feel it's wrong to discriminate against a person solely on the basis of their race or color? The mayor did not hesitate. He nodded and then said yes. He believed that it was wrong. Later, he said, they asked me some pretty soul-searching questions and one that was addressed to me as a man. 
and I found that I had to answer it frankly and honestly, that I did not agree that it was morally right for someone to sell them merchandise and refuse them service. And I had to answer it just exactly like that. It was a moral question, one that a man had to answer, not a politician. The next morning, headlines in the Nashville, Tennessean read, Mayor says, integrate counters. Several years ago, I agreed to appear on a talk show opposite a fundamentalist Christian. The format was that our host would ask us questions, I would respond, and the other guest would go ballistic. There would be a break for advertisements and then we'd start all over again. And during the second commercial break, the other guest turned to me and began intoning, you are doomed to hell. You will live for all eternity in a fiery lake. With every repetition, he turned up the volume, you are doomed to hell. You will live for all eternity in a fiery lake. The host, who was seated between us, looked on with an impassive gaze. The hostility on the set was palpable. Feeling both defiant and unsafe, I looked out into the TV audience, and there in the front row sat an older, white-haired, blue-eyed man looking for all the world like the good Irish Catholic father and grandfather that he is. And he was mouthing something. He was saying something just to me. God loves you. You are a child of God, and I love you. With every repetition, he turned up the volume, replacing damnation with love. God loves you. You are a child of God, and I love you. Come to rescue me from the fiery lake was none other than Charlie Connors, then president of PFLAG. Sitting before me, Charlie Connors threw me a lifeline across the divisions of sexual orientation and religion. And I experienced an inkling of what it must have been like when white students sat down with black students or stood behind them at the lunch counters. The power of what Andrea James means when she says, companion one another. Walk together. Be allies. Nelson Mandela reminded us to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. Where are our modern day lunch counters? Neighborhoods, schools, city streets, courtrooms, prisons, Dr. King said injustice anywhere is a threat to justice 
everywhere. None of us is free until all of us are free. Beloved spiritual companions, may we deepen our resolve, find the courage, and do our part to bridge all boundaries, visible and invisible. Together, let us walk through the front door or out of the fiery lake. And may we wake up with our minds stayed on freedom, love, service, justice, peace. May we feel the power of an idea whose time has come. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear from you via email at office at ASCBoston.org or through our Facebook page. If you would like to support the good work of Arlington Street Church, please consider a contribution by checking the mail or through our website, ASCBoston.org.